That cold case you're listening to? Nasty stuff. But you know what else is a crime? Missing even a moment of whatever you're doing to go on a drink run. Luckily, there's Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. With Drizzly, you can compare prices on the biggest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered in under 60 minutes. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. This is the Decibel Geek Podcast with Aaron Camaro and Chris Sinzak. You've waited all week long, and now it's that time once again. Oh, yeah, get ready to rock and roll. Hoochie Coo with the Decibel Geek Podcast. I'm Aaron Camaro. Chris Sinzak's right there. How's it going, my friend? What up, bro? How you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Hey, this week, we're going back. We're doing something that we're known for. Yes. Something that people really, really love about the Decibel Geek Podcast. Something we haven't done in quite a while. Benny Vincent interview. No. Oh, never mind. That's, we already established. That's something people hate us for. That's next April, right? <laughs> yeah. All right, no. What we're doing today is something people love us for. Yes. We should probably try to do that more often. Going back 42 years. Wow, that's a long time ago. That's right. If you're good at math, you already know. We're going back to 1974 today with a year in review. How sweet it is. Been a while since we've done one of these. I don't was it? I don't even remember what the last year that we did was. 84, maybe? I think so. Yeah. So we're jumping back a decade from there, but this is going to be great. As you guys know, the year in reviews are two-parters, so you'll get part one today. We'll go all the way up through June, and then next week you get July through the rest of the year, and you're going to get some kiss. Of course. Of course you are. In both episodes. Exactly. (laughs) So before we kick things off, here's something I love a lot. It's iTunes, because a lot of you right now are probably listening to us on iTunes. And hey, while you're there, you want to do us a huge solid, leave us a five-star iTunes review because we love it. And when iTunes is looking at their podcasts and who they want to push and who they want to promote, you know, we've started this out a long time ago as just a small group of people, a little party. And little by little, more people came to the party and more and more. And the music's awesome and everybody's digging it and the people we're talking to. And and it just grew and it grew and it grew. Well, we wanted to keep growing, too. I know you do as well. Invite more of your friends. And a great way to do that is with an iTunes review that goes a little something like this. This is one we got recently, and it's perfect. This is my go-to podcast for all things rock. Aaron and Chris are awesome, and the shows are very well done. Great new music, great classic music, great hosts. Do yourself a favor and subscribe now. That comes to us from Crow Reich. Five stars. Just the way we like it. Sweet. Thanks, Crow Reich. That's how it's done. And then now other people see that on iTunes and say, man, that sounds great. I'm going to check it out. That's true. And that's how we do it. I'll take any endorsement from a guy named Crow Reich. Heck yeah. That's speaking awesome. speaking of great endorsements, there is none finer that makes us feel better than every single week when our good friends all over the world share and retweet our shows. It means a lot to us. It means so much to us that we give them the honor 
and the prestige. And there may even be some Monopoly money laying around somewhere. Oh, yeah, we should do that. <laughs> it's been a while. Wow, going back. You know I'm talking about our Geeks of the Week. All you got to do is share on Facebook, retweet on Twitter, um, this episode you're listening to, and I'll read your name off next week. It's easy as that. Yeah, these are the people that dug the Radio Sucks radio show. Yes, good response on that one. Geeks of the Week this week are Mike Stewart, Shane Abair, Derek Leba, Shane A- no, Shane Abair twice, Joshua Toomey, Thomas Mukaji, Ian Wadley of Rock and Metal Combat Podcast, Matt Ashcraft, Kevin Williams, Paul Korn, Mark Alden Taylor, Joe Mama's Wrestling Podcast, Aaron Baker, Joe Royland, Sit and Spin with Joe, Andrew Jacobs, uh, Brent Walter, Rich Dillon, Dan Chaput, David Glenn, Trevor McDougal, Greg McGlone, Gino Ames, Adam Cox, Wayne Cross, Anthony Britt, Mikhail Burrell, Marty Lang, Brent Tibbetts, Jesus Chrysler shared it. Right on. Stack Burger, a burger restaurant out of New York, shared it. Oh, that's cool. Derek Novak, TJ Cullen, the TJE Podcast, Ernesto Aguiar, and the Mooger Fuger. Those are our people. We love them. Every one of them. Absolutely. Our people, our crowd. These are our people. These are our crowd. Uh-huh. Totally. You know it. We love our music. We love it loud. Or... We'll go back a little further than that. Yeah. We'll go back to 1974 today. If you've been with us for a while, you know how we start these year in reviews. Yes. With the facts. Give me the facts, Jack. Here's the facts from 1974. The average cost of a new house was $34,900. I'll take one. The average income per year was $13,900. I don't know if my family would survive. No, well, if you had a house for 34000 I guess. Right, you know. yeah, that'd be different. Your average monthly rent is $185. See, yeah, if your rent was 185 it would work it's out. It's all about inflation. Mm-hmm. The cost of a gallon of gas is $0.55. Cents. Wow. The average cost of a new car is $3,750. And the most important stat of 1974, bacon, cost $1.15 per pound. Wow. Yes, because where would we be without that statistic about bacon? It's the most important number for every one of our year interview shows. Absolutely. So I guess if we're going to start it out, the only place to start it out is right at the very beginning. And right off the bat, on January 2nd, President Richard Nixon. Oh, yeah, Tricky Dick. Yeah. 1974. He makes the law is the 55-mile-per-hour speed limit. So it's his fault. Sammy Hagar raises his fist in opposition somewhere. You Backstage know, at a Montrose show, I'm guessing, probably. about this time. Yeah. yeah, It's funny. Sammy Hagar wrote... I'll I, never! Yeah. He, he wrote, I can't drive 55, and in the 80s it had one connotation. But now that Sammy's a senior citizen, it takes on a whole different meaning. So when we do these year-in-review shows, as you guys know, maybe somebody uh, is new, we do it through the eyes of rock and roll. Yeah. Then we kick it all off right in January. Now, here's a band very, very unappreciated in their homeland. I'm talking about Foghat. They're one of the few 70s English rock bands that aren't doing the glitter rock thing. Right. They take the grittier, more blues rock approach that would also make them way, way more popular here in the States than in, in the UK. So in 1974, they released their third studio album entitled Energized. It's Foghat's highest charting album of the 70s in the U.S. up to that point, and it marks the steady upswing of popularity and sales. Energize doesn't contain any big Foghat hits, but it is one of their most solid albums, and it includes tunes like Golden Arrow, Wild Cherry, and this familiar-sounding Honey Hush.
Lonesome Dave Peverett and the Boys. That goes to number 34 in the U.S., number nothing in the U.K. <laughs> Fogat's got some of the world's most hugely loyal fans. I mean, they kept that band in, in the charts. Like, every album they released up to, like, 1983. Oh, yeah? Like, stuff you wouldn't think, like, Foghat wasn't around in 83. No, yeah, they were charting in 83. Wow. And on top of that, just like a couple of months ago, they released their their latest album, yeah. and it was totally fan funded. Oh, it's that's called cool. it's called Under the Influence. You can check out that new Fog Hat. Yeah, I want to I want to listen to that. But, uh, that song it had a sound a little bit like uh, a little train kept a rolling there. Right? Yeah, well, Aerosmith didn't invent that one themselves no, either. No, they didn't. That one's out there for public use. Borrow from the best, right? Yeah. In February, this is a very famous story. Yeah. Uh, Patty Hearst is kidnapped outside her Berkeley, California apartment by the Symbionese Liberation Army. Yeah, and then what winds a, up working with them. What a bunch of nut jobs those people were. She ends up holding up a bank with them. Jeez. And then they uh, break. I don't know what ended up happening. I didn't really follow up, but you know what ended up happening? Her? I know they all had goofy nicknames. And yeah, she was called Tanya. Yeah, and that it just, none of it ended up good. I'm sure most of them are probably in prison, probably still to this day. A number of them died. Like they yeah. Did. I think there was like a raid on them and they got killed, but I'm not sure what ended up happening to her. She went to jail, I think. I can tell you, and there's another story that's going to come up a little bit later on, and I talk about this show, The Dollop, once in a while. Yeah. And if you ever want to listen to like American history that's just presented in a way that's funny as hell, check out this podcast called The Dollop, and they tell the story about that. Oh yeah, and they really go in depth on it. I and there's there's another that. one I'll recommend a little bit later on okay. in the show. Uh, February fourteenth, the Captain and Tennille are married in Virginia City, Nevada. <laughs> so they're now pronounced the Captain and Mrs. Tennille. I Mrs. Guess. Mrs. Captain. Yes. My parents, Captain Tennille, played my parents' wedding song. Really? Yeah. Muskrat Love? <laughs> Judging by my dad's sideburns in the wedding pictures, it's possible. No, I can't even really remember the name of the song. It was something <laughs> It was something very lovey-dovey, I'm sure. Yeah, that's cool. But More My Speed mm-hmm. was probably a band like this. By the time 1974 rolls around... Deep Purple has been rocking for over five years and have released seven albums. Since 1969, they've been killing it with what 90% of rock fans would probably call their greatest of many lineups. Ian Gillen on vocals, Roger Glover on bass, Ian Pace on drums, John Lord on keyboards, and of course, Richie Blackmore on guitar. After one hell of a run with what may be the holy trinity of early 70s metal with In Rock, Fireball, and Machine Head, doubled with endless touring, it seemed like this band, the more success they achieve, the more the team becomes fractured. They barely survive the recording of Who Do We Think We Are, but in the following tour, it proves to be too much for Gillen and Glover, they leave the band. I always loved the way Gary Corbett told us the story of a young Deep Purple fan feeling nervous anticipation as his favorite band recruits David Coverdale and Glenn Hughes and returns with 1974's Burn.
You know, Coverdale was an unknown, and Blackmore liked him. And then the the rest of the band had been pretty much recruiting Glenn Hughes from Trapeze for way before Ian Gillen was even technically out of the band. Yeah. Now, Hughes, he thought that Paul Rogers was going to be the other singer. Oh, that'd be interesting. But it ended up, of course, being David Coverdale. It's... It's funky rock for sure. Number yeah. number nine in the U.S., number three in the U.K., number one in Germany, Austria, and Norway. Wow, it was just it was a change for Deep Purple, but man, it was good, still good. And to inject, go ahead for the first time in the conversation to inject Kiss into the argument. Uh, listen to the song "Burn" and then listen to "I Stole Your Love." Yeah. Or oh, yeah. Hallelujah. It's really the same riff. <laughs> That's true. You can tell Paul loved Deep Purple. Most definitely. All right, so I'm going to do my first pick of the show. Here's another band that Paul loved. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Humble Pie released their seventh studio album called Thunderbox on A&M Records, and it was produced by Steve Marriott. Reached number 52 on the Billboard 200 album charts in the U.S. The Plan UK release was canceled, so this is maybe another case where they were bigger in America than they were overseas. Uh, Twelve songs are on the album, seven of which are covers. Incidentally, the word thunderbox is a 17th century slang word for the toilet. Oh, wow. Uh, which gives an example of Humble Pie's sense of humor. <laughs> and if you see the look at the album cover, it's got a keyhole through which a woman can be seen sitting on a toilet. Oh, wow. It's a really bizarre album cover. That's crazy. Yeah. That's cool, though, man. Can't go wrong with that old Humble Pie, good especially stuff. from 74. Absolutely. That's really good stuff. Yep. All right. You got to love 1974 for nothing else. For me and for you, and I know for a lot of our listeners, 1974 is the year it all began. Mm. Oh, yeah. A little over a year after playing their first gig together, young New Yorkers Gene Simmons, Paul Stanley, Peter Chris, and Ace Fraley find themselves at Bell Sound Studio with producers Richie Wise and Kenny Kerner, recording the songs that will make up their self-titled debut. Although it's packed with many songs considered iconic by fans today, at the time, it didn't exactly catch the world on fire. It would crack the Billboard Top 100 at number 87, but it stalled out pretty quickly, and with no radio singles to get the band national exposure, they took it to the road. After their album showcase performance in Los Angeles, Warner Brothers, who distributed for Casablanca, hated the way they looked so much that they threatened to end the deal with Neil Bogart just based on how they looked. Didn't say nothing about the music. They sound fine, but they look insane. We don't want it. That's crazy. Kiss never gave up. And of course, the rest is Kistery. Hit 
Gotta love it, man. It's my favorite Kiss song. The album cover modeled after With the Beatles album. You yeah. ever see that? Compare them? Oh, yeah. Very similar. Totally where it came from. It features Kiss in their pre-evolved makeup designs, except for Peter Chris. Who the hell knows what that's all about? It's actually an African mask makeup. <laughs> that's it, what it looks it like. It is. It, it, like, that's what the uh, makeup person based it off of. He's like one of them African safari cats. Maybe. Man. Of course, then you got Ace with the silver spray paint in his hair. Good times. Absolutely. Good stuff. And from there, it's the U.S. Canadian tour, TV appearances on Dick Clark's In Concert and the Mike Douglas show, and then back into the studio to try, try again. And we'll talk about that one in part two. Absolutely. So that, that one came out on February 18th, uh, big day in rock and roll, actually for New York rock and roll. Um, on that same day, Yes sold out the first of two nights at Madison Square Garden. I know we got a number of Yes fans on this show. Yeah. Um, they, it, like, they like shopping through our Amazon link. We appreciate them for it. But they sold out two nights at Madison Square Garden with no advertising. Wow. I mean, that tells you what kind of a momentum they were on at that time. Yeah, Yes was Prog Rock huge was a big in 74. Deal. Yeah, Prog Rock was very big at that time. Yeah. So um, on February 20th, two days after the Kiss album comes out, Cher files for divorce from Sonny Bono. Ah. Coincidence? I think not. Nope. She bought the first Kiss record and said, I'm gonna, he will be mine. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Not the African cat, the other guy. Yeah, the guy guy with the crazy face all right so my next pick the sixth studio album by the amboy dukes now dubbed ted nugent and the amboy dukes mm. came out in february it was the first of two albums released on frank zappa's discreet label nugent refers to this version of the amboy dukes as the de-drugged version <laughs> success on his own after this so then so ted nugent shows up he's a member of the amboy dukes yeah. the other guys are all writing songs about taking journeys to the trips at the center of their mind yeah. man and ted says hey wait a minute what's going on here you guys are all on drugs you're all fired mm -hmm. this is now ted nugent and the amboy dukes and you guys over there guess what get over here you're the amboy dukes are you on drugs no you're in that's exactly how it went i'm sure wow that's awesome and that album's called call of the wild so you know ted was his influence was all over that album but if you listen to earlier Amboy Duke stuff, it's very hippie stuff. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, it was not not the greatest fit for him, but the, that I like that Call of the Wild record. Right on. That's cool. Well, going from one awesome guitar player to another one, this is 1974's greatest white blues guitar player alive. That was his catchphrase. That was his thing that the record company liked to push. Because he was an albino? Cause he, well, because he was an albino, <laughs> yeah. And he was a white blues player. Yeah, a great guitar player. Talking about Johnny Winter, he formed his first band when he was 15 years old with his 12-year-old brother, Edgar. 
When he was a teenager, he went to see B.B. King in Beaumont, Texas, somehow talked the blues legend into letting him jam on stage with him where the surprised and delighted crowd goes nuts for him. The whitest guys in the room, not just because they were in a black club, but like because you say, they're always the whitest guys in the room. They're albinos. Shortly after that, he's invited on stage to play during a Mike Bloomfield Al Cooper show at the Fillmore East in New York City. From there, I mean, Rolling Stone writes an article about him. Record companies are fighting for him all over the place. He ends up with Columbia Records and takes a deal that's sweeter than the one Zeppelin got a year before. Wow. This guy's a hot commodity at the time. And uh, he skyrocketed fast from there, burnt out just as quick. And so by 1974, he's just kind of making his comeback. He's riding the comeback wave from the previous years, still alive and well, and taking Southern-style blues rock to another level with Saints and Sinners. Instead of a VW Super Beetle, consider Ford's Little Pinto. Pinto's sticker price is $367 less than the Super Beetle. No wonder in the U.S., Pintos outsell all VWs. I didn't know that. Looking for a small car that goes a long way on a little gas? Ford Motor Company has 13 gas-stingy small cars with sticker prices less than a VW Super Beetle. I didn't know that. Now that you know, see your Ford or Lincoln Mercury dealer today. Must remember this, a kiss is just a kiss, but this one's something else, sweetheart. Kiss, baby. Introducing the kiss that gets you, Angel. Kiss, a new group, a new album on Casablanca Records and Tape. You are listening to the Decibel Geek Podcast as we take a rock and roll trip through time back to 1974. Another thing we like to do, because it wasn't all about rock and roll, we got some sports fans around here too. So I want to let you know what happened in the world of sports in 1974. And it starts out with the Super Bowl, where the Miami Dolphins defeated the Minnesota Vikings 24-7 in Houston. MVP of the game, Larry Sanka. Miami, running back. That guy was a beast. Oh, yeah. And some of the younger listeners will know him from the co-host role in American Gladiators. Yeah. Minnesota <laughs> Vikings were in a lot of Super Bowls back then. Yeah. 
Did, one of one of which they lost to the Chiefs. Yeah. Did they ever win one? Oh yeah, they beat the Chiefs in one of them too. Did they really? Actually, yeah. The Chiefs. I thought the Vikings have been to a bunch, but never had what it took to actually win. No, they beat the Chiefs in one of them. Where look that up? I guess you would know. Yeah, I see it as my favorite team lost to them, yeah. Yeah. Um, same thing that year in the NFL. It's the first year of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the Seattle Seahawks. So yep. in the upcoming season, we got brand new teams. That's very cool. In the football World Cup, soccer as we call it here, West Germany wins 2-1 to one over the Netherlands. That sound weird to say, West Germany. Yeah, because it doesn't exist anymore. No, I haven't had to say West Germany in probably forever, if yeah. ever. <laughs> In the NBA Finals, you got the Boston Celtics win four games to three over the Milwaukee Bucks. Oh, man. the last time the Bucks were a great team. Yeah, no kidding. They stink nowadays. <laughs> now, I can tell you, 1974 wasn't the best year for professional wrestling. I think the biggest thing that happened that year was probably Billy Robinson and the Milwaukee Crusher defeating Nick Bockwinkle and Ray Stevens for the AWA World Tag Team titles at a big event in Green Bay. Ray Stevens? Yeah. The guy that did the streak? No. Oh, a different race. Different race, Stevens. Okay. Uh, only to lose them back two months later in Winnipeg, Manitoba. In the corner of Bockwinkle and Stevens, Bobby the Brain Heenan. Uh-huh. That's cool. Bobby Heenan's awesome. One of my all-time favorites. Um, one of the biggest, craziest sports stories in 1974 is, of course, Ten Cent Beer Night. Anybody know about this? The Cleveland Indians, they do the 10-cent beer night for a game against the Texas Rangers at Cleveland Municipal Stadium, and Cleveland ends up forfeiting the game after (laughs) alcohol-fueled mayhem and violence erupts in the stands and onto the field. And, you know, I mentioned it earlier about the dollop. If you guys are going to check out the dollop, Mm -hmm. I recommend you start with 10-cent beer night. Oh, they have a story on that Because the story is insane. Well, from what I gather, Cleveland wasn't the Indians weren't that great back then either. No, and they were trying to do whatever they could. They couldn't even get the people from Cleveland to show up at the game. And so what they did was they put on ten cent beer night and and the insanity ensued. This story is just completely insane. If the product on the field is shit and you're getting these people drunk, that's a bad mix. Oh, it was they're gonna out they're gonna act out from it, you know. Yeah, it's an insane story. I definitely recommend you guys check out that podcast, The Dollop, and check out Ten Cent Beer Night just to get the full scope of the insanity and the destruction that happened that night in 1974 it's a wild story that is wild okay so where are we at are we in march already yeah we're rocking and rolling right through 1974 okay so march 1st rush releases their debut album self-titled released on moon records in canada and mercury in the usa hooray absolutely and uh the band was on a very limited budget in this era but once wmms in cleveland the previously mentioned cleveland uh started spinning working man the phones at the station just blew up yeah everyone wanted to know who the band was and things just took off from there this would be the only album with drummer john rutsey before neil pert came in the picture Imagine getting this album in 1974 and playing song one on side one and hearing this.
To this day, my favorite Rush album. Mine too. Absolutely. No doubt about it. I mean, geez, you got to love Neil Peart, but damn, oh, that, that, that album just rocks so hard and yeah. so good. It's just a kick-ass classic rock album. I wish they would have stayed the course like that. I do too. I mean, I or at least done another record like that. It would have been nice to get more than one, but it was... Uh, Man, that just would have been awesome to see them back in the day. And they toured with Kiss a lot in those days in clubs. Yep. Can you imagine going to a club and seeing Kiss and Rush? Man, can you imagine getting somebody from Rush to come on the show and do Ace Fraley stories? I have, oh, I'm sure they have them. Oh, I'm sure they do. Or we can get a Rush and Kiss hologram. Because I got to imagine when Kiss and Rush are hanging out together, those guys are hanging out with the Spaceman and probably not really anyone else. I don't know. Well, there's a lot of photos of them all hanging out together. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, they were all there. I remember Gene uh, told in that documentary how it was strange to him that they would all, you know, they all stay would stay at the same hotels and stuff. And the Kiss guys, of course, you know, have three girls on each arm and everything and going back to the hotel. And they'd pass by the guys in Russ's room and look in and the guys are just sitting there on their beds watching television. Wow. I'm like, why aren't Play- you guys getting laid? <laughs> Playing a little D&D. Right. I love Rush, though. That's, uh, that would have been a hell of a one-two punch. Yeah, very cool. All right, that keeps us going. Here's a good rock and roll news story. John Lennon is involved in an altercation with photographers outside the Troubadour Club, the rock and roll club out in Los Angeles, California. Lennon and his friend Harry Nielsen have been heckling comedian Tommy Smothers and are kicked out of the club. What a scene that must have been. No kidding. <laughs> You just had a club like the Troubadour, and there's comedy going on, and all of a sudden John Lennon shows up and just disrupts shit. Yep, and this is back during the uh, Hollywood Vampires days when uh, Alice Cooper and Lennon and all those people would hang out at the Rainbow. So it, yeah. it was a real scene back in those days. Man, to be there for that. Time machine. Somebody needs to invent a time machine. Yeah, and a teleporter. That's true. Okay, so my next pick, uh, Aerosmith on March 1st releases Get Your Wings. It's yes. their second studio album released on Columbia Records. Produced by Ray Colcord, Jack Douglas, and Bob Ezrin. Nice. That's uh, a hell of a combination quite a right com- there. Quite a combination. I mean, the Ray Colcord. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> now the, uh, the album is certified triple platinum today, but did not race up the charts at the time. This is before their real breakthrough success, but it it's done well in the... In the uh, time since this song written by steven tyler is also joey kramer's favorite aerosmith song this is lord of the thighs cheek humor from Aerosmith. My favorite Aerosmith song, too. Is it? I think so. No kidding. It's right up there. I didn't know that. Uh, let's go on. Hey, you know, 74 is a great year for new bands coming out. You know, you're getting Kiss is starting to emerge and a lot of other bands. Another band that made their first debut in 1974 was the Ramones, yep. when on March 30th, they played their first concert at the Performance Studio in New York City. New York was quite a 
quite a hot point at that point that time. Yeah, it was. Pretty crazy. Look at all the bands coming out of there. All right, so Queen puts out their second album on March 8th of 1974, just entitled Queen 2. It's easy. Recorded at Trident Studios in London in August of 73 with co-producers Roy Thomas Baker and Robin Cable and engineered by Mike Stone. Released to an initially mixed critical reception, Queen 2 remains one of the band's lesser-known albums. Nonetheless, the album has retained a cult following since its release, has garnered praise from musicians such as Axl Rose, Steve Vai, and Billy Corgan, and is significant in being the first album to contain elements of their signature sound and multi-layered overdubs, vocal harmonies, and varied musical styles. The song has it all, including the ending of the song being played backwards during the intro, and it's one of Queen's heaviest. It's a tune called Ogre Battle. Also, 1974 was a big year for Southern rock icons Leonard Skinner. Just another band discovered by Al Cooper. We gotta figure out who the heck this Al Cooper guy is and get him on the show. Sounds like he's got some awesome stories. Isn't he the guy that wears like the eye makeup and has the snake and everything? No, he's the guy with the t-shirt that says, I'm not that guy. Oh, okay. Right. So, fresh off their hugely successful debut album and a sweet spot opening for the Who on the Quadrophenia U.S. tour, Skinner is back with a second helping. Yep, all the ones you hear over and over again on classic rock radio, Call Me the Breeze, Ballad of Curtis Lowe, and of course, Sweet Home Alabama. Shout out to Neil Young. You know that one? Uh -uh. (laughs) Uh-uh. Sweet Home Alabama. (laughs) Never heard it. What is that? (laughs) It's also got some really great rocking tunes on there like Working for MCA, Swamp Music, and The Needle in the Spoon. Number 12 in the U.S., and now Leonard Skinner is a household name in 1974. 
All right, that brings us up to April. Talking about great bands making their debuts. Here's another one. They debuted on April 5th at Gazzari's in Hollywood. If you're guessing, I bet you're guessing right. I'm talking about Van Halen. Here's another debut of a different kind. Somebody that a lot of people that love to read really like a lot. Talking about Stephen King. He publishes Carrie on April 5th as well. That's his first novel. Yep, April 5th was a busy day. Also on April 5th, the World Trade Center, then the world's tallest building, opens in New York. All that happened on the same day. Wow, that's awesome. April 5th was a big day. Man, and then the next day, on April 6th, 200,000 music fans attend the California Jam Rock Festival. Oh man, I would have loved to have been there with them. Artists performing at the event include Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, Black Sabbath, Deep Purple, Black Oak, Arkansas, and the Eagles. There you go, some of the biggest bands in 1974 right there. The the Black Sabbath and Deep Purple sets alone have gotten a lot of play You know, through YouTube. You know, They have the giant rainbow behind them on the stage. It's an outdoor yeah. show. And also, the... Um, Dick Clark Productions put on the California Jam. Yeah. Dick Clark Productions also owned the end concert. Right, yeah. The rainbow you see on the stage at California Jam, that's the same Same. rainbow stage prop that's behind Kiss on the end concert special. Oh, wow. That's cool, man. nerdy trivia for you. That's very cool. I like that. Yep. Talking about New York, here's another band for you from Long Island, Blue Oyster Cult. They've been making a slow, steady progression since releasing their self-titled debut in 1972. That one goes to 172 on the charts in the U.S. Then they released Tyranny and Mutation. That one goes to 122 in the U.S. So little by little, they're getting there. That one comes out in 73. But in 74, they take it up a notch with Secret Treaties. That one goes to number 53. Like acid and oil on a madman's face His reason tends to fly away Like lesser birds on the four winds Like silver scripts in May And now the sands become a crust Most of you have gone away The UK's famous Melody Maker magazine calls Secret Treaties at the time the top rock album of all time. Wow. And finally, something from the United States that they like. Right. (laughs) Finally. Their newfound gold status takes the band from opening act for Alice Cooper and the Mahavari... Mahavishnu Orchestra. Maha, yeah, Mahavishnu Orchestra. Yes, that's that's what that is. They were... bless you. That's crazy. They're... (laughs) That's good. We need to stop opening for orchestras and, uh, you know, get in as an arena headliner. That's what they do. This album's got lyrical contributions from Patty, is it Smythe? Patty Smith? Patty Smith. Patty Smith. She was once considered to be the lead singer of Blue Oyster Cult. No kidding. Yeah. Also, lyrical contributions from famous journalist Richard Meltzer. The album contains some killer guitar player playing from Buck Dharma and definitely solidifies the band's signature uh, sound. They're not quite Godzilla, don't fear the Reaper yet, but they're getting there. They're getting there. So we're still in April, and on April 8th, this is big, well, to baseball fans and to me personally, Hank Aaron became the all-time Major League Baseball home run leader with a 715th in Atlanta in front of a national television audience. Um, I grew up a Braves fan. Uh, my dad was born in Milwaukee. The Braves were in Milwaukee at the time. Yeah. So the history, especially the old Braves stuff, is a big part of my life. And I uh, got to meet Hank Aaron, saw him play in old-timers games. 
So he's like a hero to me. Always has That's been. cool. So that was a big deal. And I'm in like, and the April 8th is 10 days before my brother was actually born in 1974. Oh, wow. So my mom always likes to tell the story that Eric got to see Hank Aaron hit his home run, but he was inside my mom's stomach at the time. <laughs> <laughs> they were watching TV. They were watching it on TV that night. That's pretty cool. Hank Aaron, he must have been towards the end of his career oh, at that yeah, point. Oh, yeah, very huh? much. He played maybe, I think, three two more seasons and he played that one in Atlanta and then he went to Milwaukee and played for the Brewers for the last two years of his career. That's awesome. Because he loved the people of Milwaukee. Heck yeah. All right. So for my next pick, all right. They know how to party. We're going to get strange now. There was a band that put out their second studio album in April of 74. It was released on MGM, produced by Roger Glover, whose name's already come up a couple of times because of Deep Purple. The members of this band included keyboardist Doug Thaler, guitarist Nick Pantis, and David Feinstein, drummer Gary Driscoll, and a singer named Ronnie James Dio. Dio! Performing a song called Carolina County Ball. <laughs> what the hell are you listening to? Uh, certainly not. Dio? Certainly not a mob rules type song, but uh, his voice still comes cutting right through on that. Yeah, that's the crazy thing about that. That's some strange music that you would think you wouldn't really put Dio in hand in hand with no. that, but damn, is he a good singer. I'd expect to see a shootout at a saloon after hearing that. Yeah. But, uh, it's uh, definitely different, but I had to play it. I could listen to that. Just because his vo- voice is so young and so good in it. Yeah, he sounds great. Awesome. I want to own it on vinyl. I'm going to have to yeah, go for it Yeah, for sure. Now. All right. All right, so keeping on moving in the rock and roll news, and on April 25th, Pam Morrison, Jim Morrison's widow, is found dead in her Hollywood apartment from an apparent heroin o- overdose. Three years after Jim left him. Or is she? Oh, yeah. Dun, dun, dun. She's, she's living with him in Oregon. Uh-huh. Yeah. Or running guns in Africa or wherever. The latest thing I heard was Morrison was a rodeo cowboy in Oregon. Nice. Yeah. By the name Mr. Mojo Ryzen. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Good old Jim Morrison. But, yeah, that I guess that was probably not a shock to anybody. She was pretty caught up in the drugs at the time. Um, I saw right. Jim Morrison. He was live. He was hanging out at Pizza Hut with The Undertaker. Oh, really? Yeah. Cool. You have to listen to VIP to hear that story. <laughs> <laughs> I don't tell know about the Jim Morrison Tell me that's part, a teaser, huh? But there is a good Undertaker story. Okay. VIP. All right. So uh, I don't know how you... I don't know. You call him Sweet or The Sweet? I hear mm, both. I call him The Sweet. Okay. The Sweet put out their second studio album in April of 1974. Marked a change to a harder sound from the pop leanings of their self-titled debut. The album title, Sweet Fanny Adams, originally a Royal Navy slang originating from the murder of eight-year-old Fanny Adams in 1867 and means nothing at all. Right. As well as a similar euphemism, F.A., equaling fuck all. Yeah, the sweet fuck all. Yeah. This uh, 
album reached number 27 on the UK charts but did not get an American release. But five of the album's songs wound up on the US version called Desolation Street that was released the next year. This song had a provocative title at the time discussing a guy's girlfriend swinging both ways. This is a song called ACDC. Magnavox presents Odyssey, the electronic game of the future. Odyssey easily attaches to any brand TV, black and white or color, to create a closed-circuit electronic playground. Odyssey gives you all the exciting action of hockey and 11 other challenging play and learning games for the entire family. Odyssey, a new dimension for your television. Now at your Magnavox dealer. He's listed in the yellow pages. Making our way right through the year of 1974. Rock and roll. We love it. This is the Decibel Geek Podcast. We're going to continue on. And, you know, let's talk about some other stuff going on in 1974. How about television premieres? Yeah, in television, there's a lot of pretty famous shows that started that year. Uh, Happy Days premiered that year. Oh, yeah, that's that that TV show that Vinnie Vincent played music for, right? That was Journey Loves Chachi. Well, he did do Happy Days, and then Journey Loves Chachi. Because you got to work your way around. Back then, it was Vincent Cusano. Yeah, and who uh, and who was cooler than the Fonz, man? Vincent Cusano was cooler than the Fonz. Well, besides Vincent Cusano, that's true. How cool would that show have been if it would have been like instead of the Fonz, it was Vinnie Vincent in full kiss makeup? Hmm. I would have watched 1974. It would have been confusing. <laughs> really confusing. Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley on the road watch TV. Who the fuck is this guy? He stole our gimmick. Yeah, he stole our thing. The Wiz. Sue his ass. That's stupid. We'll get him in our band and then we'll screw him over. That's yeah. what we'll do. But we'll wait many, many years, so we'll never see it coming. And then Mork shows up. <laughs> also premiering and the Slee Stacks. Uh, also premiering in '74, Land of the Lost. Yeah, which was a famous show at the see, time. See those like Happy Days. I remember being a little bitty kid and watching that on TV. Of course, mm-hmm. I wasn't quite alive yet when uh, when it premiered, but it was on for quite a oh, while. Yeah. Land of the Lost, Saturday mornings. I gotta love that. Yeah, the Six Million Dollar Man debuted that year. Right on. And also Good Times, which that was a, a cultural significant show. Yeah, and it uh, played for many years. Also popular were Kung Fu, The Price is Right, The Waltons. Price is Right. And Kojak. Man, I hated the Waltons. Yeah, the Waltons was boring. Yeah, but I love The Price is Right. Yeah, the top three shows. Bob Barker, man. He had it going on. All those hot women all around him all the time. The top three shows that year were Chico and the Man, Sanford and Son, and All in the Family. Right on. That's cool. All in the Family. Archie Bunker. 
Yeah. My grandpa's favorite TV show. <laughs> I think everyone's grandparents' favorite yeah. TV show. Oh, man. That's awesome. So we're into May now. Yeah, and back into the rock and roll. Now, here's a band that never really got a lot of attention in the U- in the U.S., but they're very revered in Europe, and I'm talking about Status Quo. I hadn't really thought about Status Quo too much until uh, Jeremy and Phil were here for our guitar duos conversation, and he brought up Status Quo. Mm-hmm. I've been checking some of it out ever since. It's really good. They were formed in 19, uh, 1962 as a psychedelic rock band in London, and then they go through various changes before releasing their debut album in 1968 with possibly their most well-known song, Pictures of Matchstick Men. Yep. A lot of people know that one, I think. The status quo, well, as a band, they're anything but, because by the 70s, they totally evolve into more of a straightforward rock band. So their 1974 release, simply titled Quo, man, it's a perfect example of that. Considered one of their heaviest albums, it features standout tracks like Break the Rules, Lonely Man, and Backwater. goes to number two in the uk number nothing in the u.s i feel a little pissed off that nobody told us about the quo back in the day (laughs) i mean i knew the name but i never really checked out much of their stuff until you know the last few years but these guys are great i mean i hear some of these songs that i think well man that'd be great on classic rock radio oh yeah they did not get nearly the exposure they should have gotten well they got over 30 studio albums to check out i'd start 30 yeah over the years damn still going too i believe if you're going to get into the status quo, I think I'd start with this one. So I'm buying Quo uh, I'm buying, from 74. So I'm buying Elf and I'm buying Quo. Cool. Okay. That's good. Do it all through our Amazon link at decibelgeek.com, please. Please do. Which we're not doing the typical Amazon thing this week because we got so much to shove into this one episode. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, please use our Amazon link. Um, one album I already have that is the second studio album is the New York Dolls, Too Much Too Soon. Released on Mercury Records on May 10th of 74. Produced by Shadow Morton. Reason being, they, David Johansson in particular was very vocal about not liking the sound of their first record. So they went and got Shadow Morton, who had worked with a lot of acts. Nothing like the New York Dolls. Very much different stuff. Uh, this album features a number of cover songs and re-recordings of old demos to fill it out. As well as Johnny Thunder's vocal debut on Chatterbox. 
The album title is one of the truest ever given, in my opinion, as it pretty much sums up the New York Dolls as they really seem to get caught up in the trappings of stardom as well as being ahead of their time. This album gets credited by many as proto-punk, and I'd have to agree. Of course, they would release other stuff after this, but this was really the end of the line for the Dolls at the time. Yeah, that's a shame. They yeah. were they could have been great. great. They could have held it together. Great story, though, if you want to check out their, uh, their stuff. Right on. On May 25th, 20 years after it's recorded, the song Rock Around the Clock by Bill Haley and his Comets returns to the Billboard Top 40. How can that be? How does a song like that return after all them years? Well, there's a reason for it. Yeah, a really easy reason. It gets renewed popularity because of its use in the film American Graffiti, and of course, as the opening song on the TV show Happy Days. Yep. Isn't that crazy? It just blew up all over again. And all of a sudden, it's a huge hit in 1974. Bill Haley's like, you know, spending money hand over fist after that, I'm sure. Yeah, very cool. All right, so here's something that's totally, totally different than that. Before the new wave of British heavy metal, there was Budgie. The band once known as Six Ton Budgie was formed in Cardiff, Wales in 1967. A dark, heavy power trio, a little bit like Sabbath. They even got Roger Bain to produce their first two albums. Mm -hmm. Such a great band, but so underground that few people really knew about them on a worldwide scale. But by 1974, they had released three studio albums with little to no play even in their homeland of England. But all that changes with the release of In For The Kill, featuring stellar tunes like Hammer and Tongs, Wondering What Everyone Knows, and Don't Stop Me If You've Heard This One Before. Budgie finally hits the charts in the UK, and they do it in a big way when this album goes to number 29. Still no play in the US, except for on the turntables of kids who would grow up to form some of the greatest bands of our time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Budgie. Definitely. Fucking great band. Completely underrated. Way. So many of their albums are 
perfect additions to your collection. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I love and In for the Kill in particular is a great record. It really is. They got a lot of good stuff. They do. Their debut album's pretty killer too. Yeah, and they are huge, hugely influential on a lot of the British heavy metal bands. Yeah. Okay, so for my last pick of the day, uh, this is UFO. The year UFO put out Phenomenon it was their third studio album. And this album definitely marked a big change in the band. It, it was released on Chrysalis Records, and it's the debut album for Michael Schinker. Yes. lead guitar part comes in at the beginning it always gives me goosebumps totally love that shit ufo in 1974 that's great all right i got another one for you now here's a band let's see i guess i would describe black oak arkansas as get down funky good time boogie woogie rock and roll sound about right yeah that's pretty good yeah and in the 70s i don't think anybody did it better than they did known for their wild and outrageous frontman jim dandy mangrum and his signature song, Jim Dandy to the Rescue, You Know It, You Love It, formed in 1963 by high school buddies in, you guessed it, Black Oak, Arkansas. In 1974, they're coming off the success of their all-time highest-selling album, High on the Hog, and in 1974, the fun continues with a street party. Hey, y'all. Still doing it. Jim Dandy and most of the original guys are still out there doing it today. you got to respect that. If you get a chance to see Black Oak, Arkansas, man, go see them. You know you're going to have fun. 
And truly no one sounds like Jim Dandy. No, nobody. Even on that album, they do a cover of uh, Dancing in the Streets, pre-Van Halen style. Oh, yeah. Speaking kinda, of, and there's a little rocked bit of, out. there's a definite influence on David Lee Roth. Oh, yeah, totally. You can see it. Watch some old Jim Dandy on oh, stage, yeah. and you see a little DLR in there he for sure. a lot from Jim Dandy. Heck, yeah. All right, so we're in, uh, we're going to close out May. Or are we still in May? Are we in June? No, we're in June now. We're in June now. All right. We're getting to the end of the line here. Oh, we're man. almost done. This has gone by too fast. Yeah, it has. It's so much fun today, and we're learning so much, and I feel like we're teaching stuff and having fun doing it. It's year in review. This is the way it's supposed to go, nice and easy. I can't wait to do next week. Oh, man, that's a lot more homework. That's the one thing about these shows. It's a lot of homework because we kind of want to know what we're talking about. But well, we learn shit out of all these Absolutely. Shows. So we're getting smarter with you. Yeah. It's all good. All right, uh, what do we got here? Oh, here's something interesting. The universal product co- code is scanned for the first time. You know, a little the thing, UPC you go to the code. store, the beep, 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 when yep. you're checking out at the grocery store. The first thing ever sold that way, you're never going to believe it. A pack of Wrigley's chewing gum Yep. at a supermarket in Troy, Ohio. Who would ever guess that? That's where it all began. I didn't know that until I did the research. The little things you do in life that you just don't think about. And that's one of those things, like I thought barcodes had been around longer than that. So I didn't even realize 74 was when it started. I guess if you really thought about it, I would have guessed sometime in the 80s. Oh, really? But then again, I remember being pretty young. The kind they used to, like, they'd slide it across. Mm-hmm. It was like star-shaped plastic, you yeah. know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, this has been our 1974 year in review part one. I've got one more to go before we get out of here. But as always, want to remind you, check us out at decibelgeek.com. All kinds of cool stuff going over there. We've got writers from all over the world. These are world-class rock and roll journalists. Good stuff on the side. They work for us. Yeah. We only pay them in prestige and honor. But they work for us. It's been a good trade-off. Yeah. When you see these guys out around the world, they're our dudes. We love them. They're sending back cool stuff all the time. Record reviews, retro record reviews, mm-hmm. concert reviews. CD reviews. News, yeah, of, of bands yeah. coming out with new music. All kinds of cool We've stuff all the time. damn near everything right now. Yep, so keep your eyes on decibelgeek.com. Of course, that's where you're going to get your T-shirts. This episode, of course, brought to you by our VIPs over on Patreon. That's right. Without them, we really wouldn't be able to do this show as comfortably as we do. No, we did. They they're our biggest supporters and, and uh, yeah. there's always room for more of you not just i mean they don't they do help support us financially they help the mm-hmm. show you know because we use that money to make the show better yep. but they also support us with the fact that they're willing to do that absolutely and it means so much to us that it gives us inspiration to do a shit ton of homework and bring you a show like today's That's 1974 year in review plans for everyone from as cheap as a dollar a week yeah we make it work for you you pick what works for you and come help us out and we're going to give you something cool back for it it all works out great check it out at decibelgeek.com mm-hmm. or of course at patreon.com That's right. so you ready to wrap this thing on up yep let's do it all right i got one more for you now so far today we've heard from all kinds of different cool bands that were released and stuff in 1974 and one thing i noticed about 74 is that it seems like the u.s fans of rock music and the uk rock fans are very different they're both very passionate about their rock music but with varying opinions on what's good and what sucks Mm -hmm. now bands doing huge business in the uk like status quo and boc are doing good there while bands like black oak arkansas fog hat and skinnered they're what they're doing is happening stateside you know and they're they don't intermingle like what's cool here is not cool there what's cool there is not cool here yeah so with all this conflict between these two people groups of people that really love their rock and roll in 74 there's one band 
that I know of for sure, at least one that was mutually admired on both sides of the Atlantic, and I'm talking about Uriah Heep. By 1974, they had cranked out six studio albums, most of which had charted in both the U.S. and the U.K. In 74, they returned with Waterworld. Not the weird movie. <laughs> this was way before then. Oh, thank God. It goes to 23 in the U.K. and 38 in the U.S., and it doesn't have any what you would think of as classic rock radio staples. You know, how is that? In the 70s, Uriah Heep is huge, mm-hmm. yet they're largely ignored in today's classic rock radio they are. rotations. And I don't understand that. Looking back Easy on this. Easy living is all you ever hear from them. If that. If you, you rarely hear that. hear that. Yeah. So, I mean, these they got 20-plus studio albums. And, of course, the Mick Box-led band still performs today. I, I mean, didn't know that. They're still around? Yeah. Oh, okay. What about, what about Uriah Heep? Why, why can't you play him? Well, it's 1974. We're back in time. We can do what we want here on the Decibel Geek Podcast. So we'll be back next week for 1974 Part 2. That's right. And rounding things out today, this is Uriah Heap. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.